Welcome to the Celebration Church Tri-Cities podcast. We are so grateful that you have chosen to spend part of your day with us. We are praying that God speaks to you through this message from our pastor, Robert Russell. For more information about our church, visit cctri.org. Enjoy the message. Lord, you are our heart's desire. Sometimes even when we don't realize that it's you we long for, but you are the one who created us, given us a desire for life, which is found in you and you alone. We ask this morning that you would pour life into every person here, that your physical hand of healing would be upon those who need a touch from you, that you would heal the brokenhearted, the lonely, that you would give comfort to those who are watching at home who feel isolated, that they would feel your presence in a very powerful way. For all of us, Lord, that you would encourage us about this journey of life, that we might know you more clearly, honor you in everything, and truly love you. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, going back three weeks ago, I started talking about water, and I said that it's really important, I believe, to look at the things of this world and realize that everything God has created is good. He made that very statement at the beginning. But then also, everything he has created, I believe, is for the purpose of revealing to us something about his nature and character. That we might understand him, walk with him, enjoy relationship with him. Now in this Thanksgiving season, I hope you've had a lot of opportunity to be with family and friends and it's been a warm time of fellowship with others. And that's an important part of life. God has created it that way. He wants us to enjoy relationship with him first but also with one another. But the other side of that is really in some ways all of us are very alone in this journey. Because there's no other human being who can know the depths of our hearts, know all of our thoughts, know everything about us. Even the person that knows you the best only knows a portion of that. And as you journey through this life, you can depend upon others, but the seasons of life put you in places where sometimes even those who want to be there for you cannot. And then of course, when you face the end of this life, Nobody else can help you. Nobody else can hold your hand as you exit this world. They're left only holding the hand of the body that was you. Now, I don't say all of that to sadden you, but rather to give you perspective about the one upon whom you can trust in every journey of life, every season of life, every day of life, is Christ and Christ alone. He's the one who knows the depths of your heart, your thoughts, your inmost being. He's the one who's with you perfectly, that is the Holy Spirit indwelling you if you know him. 
that he's in union with your spirit. He knows you perfectly. And when you exit this body, you really won't exit alone. That you, in union with the spirit of God, will leave this physical body, but you'll be right in the immediate presence of the living God. And so I talk about that in the context first of water because water is in such great abundance everywhere, even in your physical body. We're all dependent upon it. And I believe God was saying to us, making a statement to us about the fact that we must be dependent upon physical water and likewise we are dependent upon the water that is living water that comes from Christ. And in the scriptures we studied about that over a couple weeks, it's talking about the Holy Spirit being living water. That you and I need every day the living water of the Holy Spirit to journey through this life. And then last week we began to talk about bread and I said this little mini series could be called the bread and water series. Because likewise, grain is very essential to the survival of the world population. And bread is used in scripture in a lot of ways to tell us something about the nature of God. Like, for example, going back to Joseph who interpreted the dreams that Egypt was to store up the grain and then provide for the season of famine. And the consequence of that was that Joseph's brothers had to come down into Egypt looking for food. And then you know the rest of the story, how they're reunited and so forth. And throughout scripture, there are a lot of things talking about the importance of bread. We looked at the scripture last week where Jesus was taken into the desert. He was led there by the spirit. He was, he was fasting for 40 days, then tempted by Satan. And Satan wanted him to act in pride to prove who he was, to trip him up so that he would sin. And of course, he would not, could not. But his response was, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That all of us need physical nourishment day by day, but more important than physical nourishment is the nourishment that comes to your soul and your spirit through the words of God. And that could be the Logos word of God, that is, the incarnate word of God, Christ himself. It could be the written word of God. It could be the rhema word of God. Rhema meaning the spoken word of God. For example, have you ever in your life had a scripture that just jumped out to you that spoke to you in that moment, but not just in that moment, but for decades? One single scripture that you read that it just can't, became a part of you so significantly that for decades, periodically, you would rely upon that one statement, that one statement of truth. And you see, I can think of several scriptures like that that have just become ingrained in the depths of my soul that have always, in some way or another, nourished my soul. Or have you ever had God speak to you by the Holy Spirit, a word where he spoke into your spirit that was of great significance and turned out to be something that bore fruit in your life for years and years and years to come? See, in both of those cases, 
It's the word of God speaking to your soul, your spirit, nourishing your soul and your spirit. And all of us are in desperate need for that. For example, I mentioned that when my oldest son was around 12 years old, the Lord spoke to me something very clearly about parenting. And it was what I said about um, let him make every decision he can make. I know the Lord said that to me. Now, of all the things I had studied about parenting, all the teachings I'd listened to, all the books I'd read, that one statement from God was the most significant parenting statement that ever occurred in all of the years associated with him and really with my other kids, that it paid benefits for all those years. And you see, when God speaks to you in a specific way, however he does it, sometimes he speaks to another person that that one word from God nourishes your soul and your spirit and we are all in desperate need of that. And what I've really been talking about over the last three weeks is that there are a lot of humans who are very concerned about what they consume physically, like they want a very precise diet and they exercise and so forth and they take care of their physical body all the while they are consuming water that's full of contaminants, so to speak, And the bread or the nourishment that they're feeding on is just fast food that is not healthy. That there are a lot of people who are physically healthy but are spiritually very, very unhealthy. In addition, last week, we talked about the scripture where it describes the Passover. And of course, the Passover was what occurred with the people of Israel when they were still in Egypt. It was the last judgment to come upon the Egyptians to force the Pharaoh to let them go. It was the serious judgment, the judgment of death upon the firstborn. And the Israelites were told to take a lamb, to sacrifice it, to take the blood of the lamb, put it over their doorpost. And that was why it's called the Passover, that wherever the blood was on the doorpost, the angel of death would pass over. They were then to take in the feast of what is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread and roast the lamb to consume it, to eat it with bitter herbs and bread that was without yeast. And yeast in the scripture refers to sin. They were to eat bread that was representing bread without sin. And all of that was a foreshadowing of Christ, that he would be the Passover lamb, the lamb of God, that his blood would be shed for the remission of sins for every person, that we were to consume of his life, that take his life in, in every possible way, and feed upon Christ himself that he is the Passover lamb, the one who provides in every way for us. And then also last week we talked about the scripture where the Israelites had come out of Egypt. They were wandering in the wilderness and God provided for them, the scripture says, bread from heaven. That he gave them manna, we don't know exactly what it was, but it was something like bread. They could consume or could gather every morning, consume for the day, but they had to do it each and every day. In fact, the scripture says that he tested them because if they tried to gather too much, it wouldn't last, except on the sixth day. That on the sixth day, he would provide a double portion that would take them through the seventh day so they could rest. But in all of those things in the Old Testament, all of them were what? They were essentially prophecies 
or statements leading to an understanding of who this Christ would be. In fact, in the modern church, there are some people who have said that we need to disregard the Old Testament, just focus upon the God of the New Testament. And I find that very objectionable because I think it's absolutely impossible to understand the New Testament without the Old. And some people say, well, there's a God of anger and wrath in the Old Testament, a God of love in the New Testament. No. There's a God of love and justice in both. And you see, as you understand the things of the Old Testament, you understand everything about the Old Testament was for the purpose of preparing the way for Christ so that we could understand who he is, so that the world could know that we would need a Messiah and we would find him in Jesus and Jesus alone. And so I want to continue to talk about the bread because it is throughout Scripture, it is always talking about the nature of Jesus that we might understand him and understand him more clearly. And the title for this week is simply The Bread of Life because Jesus himself referred to himself as the bread of life. If we go into the book of John, it really picks up where we left off last week because it says our fathers ate the manna that was in the desert. That is, God gave them bread from heaven. Now, God was not only giving them bread from heaven for their physical nourishment, all the while, God was giving them bread from, from heaven for their spiritual well-being. Everything that he had told them in the Mosaic Law, everything they were to abide by was to nourish their spirits. Of course, we know that they, just like us, went astray. Do you realize this? That any person who walks perfectly in the will of God, as perfect as possible, who abides in Christ, who hears from Christ, who does his will, you are constantly nourishing your soul and your spirit. But any person who steps out of the will of God, who disobeys, who rebels, who walks in sin, you are feeding upon something that is very unhealthy for your spirit. So much so that it could even destroy you, kill you. It's sad how many times I have seen the lives of people of all different ages destroyed by consuming something that was not of God, that it took a toll upon them. Sometimes I have even warned people that you are on a journey that will lead to death. I've been very firm a few times with people that you are on a journey that will lead to death. And when I'm saying that, I'm thinking death that is premature from the standpoint if you are walking in the will of God, he might extend your years. But Jesus said, he is the bread that came from heaven. He says, it's not Moses who gave you this bread, it's my father. And what he gave you, what he gives you now is true bread from heaven. And what we're gonna find when he talks about true bread, he's talking about himself. That if you want to find the greatest possible nourishment for your soul and spirit, you must learn how to take the life of Christ into your life. There is no other way. There is no other religion, no other activity, nothing else that can feed your soul and your spirit because 
Christ is alive and active, that he pours his life into you by his spirit. He nourishes your soul to make you something that you could not be otherwise, that he is the bread of life. In John 6, it says, for the bread of God is he, that is Jesus, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, he gives life in several forms. He gives first life to those who are dead. That before you know Christ, you're spiritually dead. Your soul, your, sp- your soul is alive. You can think and so forth, but your spirit is dead. You're separated from God. The person who accepts Jesus, their spirit is made alive. You've been crucified with him. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. You're a new creation in him. He gives you his life. But it doesn't stop there. And see, I think at least some portion of the modern church thinks, well, that's it. That you get salvation, that's it. Go about living your life. No. What Jesus wants to do is pour his life into you continuously, all of the time. That you would learn that you are consuming the life of Christ. There is where you find the greatest portion of life in this journey. And those around Jesus asked for this bread, but Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. That he who comes to me will never hunger and will never thirst. In fact, that one statement right there ties together all of we, that we've been talking about now for four weeks. That he who comes to me, that is to Jesus, will never hunger and never thirst. Now physically, anybody who knows Christ might still be in that state. But what he's saying is if you walk with me, if you know me, if my spirit dwells within you, I will always pour life into you. I will always give you living water. I will always give you the sustenance of life that you need, that I am the bread of life. Now, it's interesting. In Scripture, the statement I am occurs in a variety of significant ways. First, remember Moses was saying to God, he's like, You want to send me to the people of Israel? Well, I need to tell them who's sending me. Who is it? What shall I say? And God gave a rather interesting response. He said, tell them I am. Now, if I'd been Moses, I would have been scratching my head. Like, what does that mean? He says, just tell them I am has sent you. And probably no human being has ever comprehended what that statement really means. That is fully. But it is such a significant and broad statement that it probably is talking about, I am the one who has eternally existed, who created all things, who is the giver of life, who sustains life, that I am above all. And then what we find in the New Testament is there are seven explicit I am statements. That if you stop, he says, I am, and then he describes what that means, the bread of life. Or I am the good shepherd. Or I am the way, the truth, and the life. So what he's doing is elaborating in some way that you and I could understand upon the statement I am. Now think about this. 
how is it that you can comprehend and understand anything? I mean, just stop for a moment. How is it that you can comprehend and understand anything? It is because God has created us with a capacity to understand him. It is because he has created a world in which you and I could comprehend things in order to know who he is. Everything about the creation is by God's plan. You did not create yourself. You did not determine that you would have the intellect to understand certain things. God is the one who has determined it from the beginning. And his predetermined purpose is in order for you to know him. Sometimes... I'll just be chatting with someone, and instead of asking my question about what are your spiritual beliefs, sometimes I just say, do you know Christ, or you, do you know the Lord? Now, most people, if they hear that statement, would respond, oh, yes, I, I was saved, I was baptized, which that is coming to know the Lord at the beginning. But really, that question has a much deeper meaning. Do you know him? In other words, if I gave you a test about what does it mean to really know Christ, how well do you think you would do on that test? Do you realize that God is giving you that test all the time? Not in order for him to learn something, but for you to learn something. That the test of life is for you to come to a place of greater knowledge. It's always that way. That God has orchestrated this world. The purpose of this journey is to know him. But if, as I... Look at the landscape of the church in this country. I'm not sure there are that many people who call themselves Christians who really know Christ. They know about him. They know some things, but they don't really know him. For example, I like history. I've studied a lot of history. I know about a lot of people in history but I don't know them. I just know some things they did when they lived, what significance they had in that time period, but I don't know them. I didn't know how they thought, how they went about things. I, did, I didn't know their heart. Did they care about people? Did they not care about people? I can only speculate. I only know about them. Or in in current times there's some people who've made a name for themselves in the media in some way I've heard some things about them I know about them but I don't know them it is a far far different thing to actually know a person a few years ago it was probably five years ago Will Graham came to the Tri-Cities to do a an evangelistic outreach and uh, Pastors were invited to come to these meetings for two years before he came. They do a lot of preparation. So for two years, periodically, I would be in these meetings. And there would be people there from the Graham organization. And 
On one of the meetings, Will Graham was there. He's the grandson of Billy Graham. And I happened to just sit at a table and chat with him for a while, pray with him. And you know, up until that point, I knew about Will. I held him in high regard. But in that brief time, I felt like I came to know him a little better. And the one thing I walked away with is thinking, he's a very humble man, a very genuine man. There's no pretense, no facade. He didn't expect anybody to bow down to him. You see, I got to know him a little better. And that's what I'm talking about here. It's one thing to know about Christ. It's a far different thing to get to know him. Now, how many of you like statistics? Just, just curious, how many of you like statistics? That's an overwhelming minority. Yeah. How many of you liked the statistics class you had in school somewhere along the way? Any hands going? There's one, two, three, four. I like statistics. In fact, I even taught some portion of statistics in some of the classes I taught. And if you know anything about statistics, there's something called a bell-shaped curve that is applicable to about any population. That is, if you get a large enough sample of anything, it's going to pretty much flow out in a bell-shaped curve unless there's some very unusual characteristics. And what happens in a bell-shaped curve? Like, if you just took the height of people... We took all the people in the room here. We'd end up with there's somebody in here who's really, really tall out here at this end and somebody who's maybe a very young person who's very short at this point, haven't grown yet, at, you know, at the various extremes. But most people are going to be in the middle, right? And in statistics, about two-thirds, slightly more than two-thirds of the population pretty much falls in the middle. Then another section on each end or they're more extreme, but not quite the most extreme. But then in the last 1% or 2%, they're the really unusual outliers. And that's how a curve always looks. Most in the middle, then some more, and then the very few. Now, the reason I say that is that when I look at the church, I think that's what the church looks like. That if you took the mean right in the middle, that's the dividing point between those who know Christ and those who don't. And most people in most cultures, whether they know Christ or don't, seem to be very similar. I mean, there are a lot of people who know Christ, they've accepted Christ, they know about him, but they go about living their life as if knowing Jesus was only a compartment that I open on Sunday at a certain time, then I shut it, then I go back to living my life independently. And then there are a lot of people who do not know Christ who attempt to be good people. They generally have integrity. They generally try to treat people nice. Most of them believe that you'll get to heaven if there is a heaven by living a good life, whatever that means. So the majority of the population, that middle third on either side of the mean, it's hard to tell much difference between them. And then... There are some people on the lower end who are outside of that who are just plain mean. You know, they do a lot of mean things. You know that. They, they end up in trouble all the time. They're not the worst of the world, but they're not so good. And then the worst 
spectrum down there, the very small percentage are really those who are probably controlled by the demonic, who have no regard for life, who take other people's lives and don't care, who kill, steal, and destroy just like Satan does. But if you go to the other end, there are some people who, they know not just about Christ, but they really know him in some way. They really walk with him. They're different. They're peculiar. Other people think of them as peculiar. Even Christians think, eh, there's something weird about them. And then there are the very small number who are really different. Occasionally, you'll encounter one of those. You know, they're not a high percentage of the population. There's something just extraordinarily different about them. Their knowledge of God, it's like nothing they say, everything they say has to do with God. That every conversation you ever have with them, it has something to do with how God is working. Whenever they talk to you, they talk to you with words that are from the fruit of the Spirit. They're always encouraging, always uplifting. They're the very rare Christians who deeply know him. Over my life as a Christian, I've met a few of those. I don't see them every day, or, or maybe I do and don't recognize it, but, but over my life, I've met some that were so clearly like that. Miss Louise Thrasher, who died just about three weeks ago, she was like that. Whenever you're around her, it's just like the Spirit of God just poured out upon you through her. I've known others like her. Yesterday, I was talking with a friend who knew a lady that, her name was Mary Gordon, who was like a third grandmother to my children. Mary was a missionary when she was young in life, and she never married. She just loved the Lord. We adopted her. She adopted us. She was like a grandmother to our children. We used to take her on vacation with us, things like that. And wherever Mary was, the presence of the Lord was very obvious. She was very calming, very sweet, very wise. Her speech was always wisdom. It like dripped with honey. It was so sweet upon you. She's way out there in the ones who really know him. And see, this is my question. How well do you know him? Maybe some here have never ever come to the place of inviting him into your life, so you don't really know. You may have heard some things about him, but you don't know. You can't know. Maybe many here have accepted him. You know him, but you know the world better than you know Christ. Some here know him and are really growing and you're learning this journey is different from what I thought it is, that knowing him is a unique passage of life. And then there's some who really know him. Now, if you get a good perspective on what this world is about, why we exist, why we're here, what the purpose of the human journey is, what is most important? What is most important in the human journey? Is it for you to have success in the world, to accomplish things, to accumulate wealth, 
to have influence, position, power, whatever it is? Is it for you to have great experiences? Or is it to know him? See, for many people, they think life is indulging lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. They think that's life. I thought that. That in some way or another, experiences of life, things you could acquire, pride of life, that's life. I thought that before I knew Christ. And even to some extent after. But that's not life. Life is to know him. And you see, he says, I am the bread of life. In other words, he says, look, you feed upon the life of Christ. You take him into your soul, into your spirit. You know him. Now, I could not write a book on how to know Christ. In other words, I couldn't give you the 10 principles. This is how you know Christ. Can't do it. How you know Christ is this. You hunger and thirst in your soul. And he knows those who yearn, who hunger and thirst in their soul for him. And he pours his life into you. He orchestrates your life with the experiences so that you will know his character and his nature through the journey of life. Many of the hard things that you go through in life are the times in which you are coming to know him. This is why he says, I am the bread of life. There's nothing more significant than taking his life into your soul, your spirit, coming to know him. Lots of times people come to me with questions about circumstances they're dealing with and difficulties, and I can give them some reasonable wisdom, not because of anything in my human background, but because I've learned enough about who he is, his character, his nature, to say, this is what you can trust in, that God will be with you in this way, through this circumstance, because he never leaves, he never forsakes. He's always good, even in the difficulties. Yesterday, we had what you could call the Ukrainian Thanksgiving. Of course, Thanksgiving is relatively an American thing, although some people in other parts of the world celebrate, but mostly it's an American thing, and it's a new thing to the Ukrainians. And so they learned about it, and they wanted to, in some way or another, replicate it, Others encouraged them to do so. So yesterday, we had, in the entire afternoon, Ukrainian Thanksgiving. It was a really joyous time. In fact, we have 28 Ukrainians here that the church is helping, but there were 18 others who came to visit from other parts of the U.S. because they'd heard about what's going on here. They wanted to celebrate Thanksgiving. So we had 46 Ukrainians here. It was really a joy. And you see, they've been through an unimaginable trial. As I ask, I like to sit and talk with them, just ask, what happened when the war started? Where were you? And they start talking about where the bombs were going off. And I, I talked with one of the younger ones yesterday who was telling me that she was in Kharkiv. The bombs started going off. You could hear them regularly. She said, all we had was the news report about what's happening, and we could hear the bombs. 
And she said, we thought we would stay for three or four days and it would be over, like the war would just be over and we could wait it out. But then she began to learn, this is not gonna be over fast. And she had to decide what to do. And fortunately, a pastor there helped her get a ride to the western part of the country to get out of the country. I think then she went to Romania and on from there and, and uh, went to the Netherlands and then went to England and then to here in a few months. And she's one of the fortunate ones. But I see in this young lady a strong faith and see, what's happening is in this difficult, difficult journey, she's seeing the goodness of God in protecting her and taking care of her, giving her strength. Some might say, well, what, what about some who are staying there, who are, who've joined the Ukrainian military and who are fighting, who are dying? Some have been called and given the courage who know Christ to give their life to protect others. And he's with them too. He pours his life into you in every circumstance of life, no matter what it is, for those who hunger and thirst for him. So really, there are two questions. Do you hunger and thirst for him? Some of you do, but you don't realize that's what you're thirsty for or hungry for. You think it's something of this world. You think it's success or wealth or relationship, whatever it is, but it's really him that you are hungry for. And then the second question is, do you know him? Do you really know him? Do you know his nature, his character, how he responds? Do you know you can trust him? Do you know him well enough to listen when he says, turn right or turn left? that is in the journey of life. Also in John, there is the repeated the statement, I am the bread of life. You know, sometimes when I'm praying, I'm like, Lord, what do I do with this situation or how do I handle it? And you know what he says to me? I am, that's all. I've had him say that a lot, just I am. Which really means what? It means, oh ye of little faith, stop whining, I'll take care of it. But it's the nice way of saying that. I mean, really, that's, I think that's what it means when he says it that way. But he says, I am the bread of, bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the desert, yet they died. A whole generation died before they could go into the promised land. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. He's talking about himself. You take his life into yours. Physically, you'll pass, but you'll never die. Your soul, your spirit are made alive. In fact, you're being renewed day by day in your soul and your spirit, your body's wasting away. But you're becoming the perfect person that God intends for all eternity. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh. Now, some people in the liberal church have said, look, we need to stop talking about the blood and all these things. They seem they're repulsive to people. No, it's by the blood of Christ that you are forgiven. It's by the broken life, the flesh of Christ given 
that you and I could have life. It's one of the reasons that he took the form of a man so you and I could identify with him so that we could understand because God could have come in some other form but he took the form of a man so you and I could identify, could understand. He is giving his life so that you and I might have life and have it abundantly. This is why we're instructed to celebrate communion. When Jesus said to the disciples the night before he was crucified, he said, take this bread. He broke the bread. He said, take it, eat. This is my body given for you. He's saying more than his physical body. He's saying, this is my entire being given for you because I love you so much that God so loved the world and he gave his only son. And then he said, drink from the cup. This is my blood shed for you for the remission of sin to take away your sin that you would be what he's intended for you to be. From the foundations of the earth, from the beginning of time, God had intended every person who would call upon his name that you would be recreated in his image to fulfill what he had called you to do. And the only possible avenue, the only way is through the shed blood of Christ from the life of Christ given for you. There is no other way. That's why the world is very confused thinking, oh, there's so many different ways. No, there's one way. It's through the shed blood of Christ. It's the only way you can have your sin taken away. It's the only way you can consume the life of Christ. It's the only way you can be recreated in his image. And this is why he said, do this in remembrance of me. That we celebrate communion to honor him, to take his life into ours. We're not literally consuming of his flesh. What we are literally consuming of is his life. Imparted to you through the Holy Spirit, the living water, imparted to you through Jesus the Son, the bread of life. That really the essence of life him to know him to journey with him so what we're going to do is the worship band's going to come back we're just going to take a prayerful time to celebrate communion the servings are here they're just individual cups you take the cup at the top there's the wafer the bread and then there's another layer you take off that has the juice within. Come as you feel led, but make it a time, a prayerful time, to repent of anything that you know is not of God's will that's in your heart, to invite him to pour his life into you afresh, anew, to draw closer to him, to feed upon the one who is life, Christ himself.